Yes. Welcome to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, a production of FlagAndBanner.com. Through storytelling and conversational interviews, this weekly radio show and podcast offers listeners an insider's view into starting and running a business, the ups and downs of risk-taking, and the commonalities of successful people. Connect with Carrie through her candid, often funny, and always informative weekly blog. There, you'll read, learn, and make comment about her life as a 21st century wife, mother, daughter, and entrepreneur. On this week's Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, we're going to replay and revisit programs that featured members of the clergy. And if there's an overarching theme, it might be this quote that Carrie McCoy ran across and found very inspiring. Here's something that I read while getting ready for this show that really, really got me thinking. And I'm paraphrasing from the book Sermon on the Mount by Emmett Fox. And it says, no matter how you feel about religion of any kind, it is easy to say Jesus Christ may be the most important figure that has ever appeared in our written history of mankind. Think of Washington, Alexander, Caesar, Napoleon, Charlemagne. It makes no difference how you may regard Jesus, whether a man, a prophet, a fanatic, or a god. You have to concede the fact that through his life, death, and teachings, he has influenced the course of human history more than any other man that lived. That is something to think about. After celebrating Easter this past weekend, we hope you enjoy this hour as we revisit members of the clergy who've appeared on Up In Your Business. We'll begin with Father Fred Ball. Included in this portion of the conversation, lots of helpful definitions of terms. My guest today is Father Fred Ball from San Damiano Ecumenical Catholic Church. Father Fred grew up as a Southern Baptist in Arkansas and spent 20 years in the Southern Baptist ministry leading congregations. For a time after graduating from Baptist seminary and still exploring his Christian faith, he joined a Franciscan order. Later, as a Baptist preacher, he would fold some of his learned elements of Catholic worship, such as liturgical insights, calendar, and worship pieces into his Protestant mix. Though he was practicing his Baptist faith every Sunday morning, he still felt an attraction to the ritual and teachings of the Catholic Church, which he felt offered for him power, drama, and depth to his faith. After leaving the Baptist Church in 1999, Ball spent six years as an Episcopalian. But something was missing. He was still drawn to Catholicism and the ministry, but knew that it didn't jibe with his reality of his own beliefs or his situation, given that he was married. He heard about the possibility of being an ecumenical Catholic priest from a Franciscan brother and decided to form a congregation in his home. In 2006, with his wife, yes, his wife, he started San Damiano, San Damiano Ecumenical <laughs> Catholic Church. Welcome to the table, Father Fred Ball. This is the beginning of Holy Week, a very busy time for priests. Thank you so much for making time to come and talk to us. Before we dig into the meaning of Holy Week, can you tell us how you went from Baptist preacher to a practicing with the Franciscans to being an Episcopalian and now a Catholic priest? Oh, that's quite a question. <laughs> yeah, that's got to be a good story. <laughs> and we only have an hour. Where do you want to start? The short version is I think that I've always been attracted to the liturgy. I was exposed to the Catholic Mass when I was in high school because of my Spanish studies. And I met some friends from Central America who worked with Arkansas Electric Cooperative uh, who were from Central America. 
who would invite me to their church activities and say, you know, we're having a picnic Sunday afternoon. Why don't you come to Mass with us? And would sit and just soak in that liturgy and the power of the symbols and the drama that is the Mass. And that was quite attractive to me. At the same time, I was worshiping, you know, in my, my native faith, if you will, in a context where the symbolism was minimized and there was an emphasis on the sacraments not being anything except the, what they called mere symbols. Yet they were so important that certain people could receive them and certain people couldn't. And so it made me want to explore this whole sacramental liturgical drama aspect. It just it caught me at some deep place in my soul. And I began to explore that. So even, even in a Southern Baptist seminary context, I ended up doing my doctoral dissertation on the Eucharist, you know, the primary sacrament of renewal and nourishment in the Catholic traditions. How old were you when you started going to those picnics with your friend? Oh, gosh, 17 years old, probably. A very formative age. Mm -hmm. Did y'all speak a lot of Spanish? We did. And you liked that? I did. What does ecumenical mean? Ecumenical comes from the Greek word. The, the root is the word oikos, which means house or household. And so it's the root for ecumenical. It's a root for economy. But when you say an ecumenical church, it means something different. It means including the whole household. And, ah. and so for us, the emphasis is on having relationships with all Christians and not just Catholics. And this goes back to our, our roots with the old Catholic tradition, the old Catholics of uh, Utrecht in, in the Netherlands, who in the early 1700s, when they became cut off from the Roman Church, immediately looked around and said, but we're Catholic and we have to be in a relationship with other people. And so they turned to the Anglicans, they turned to the Orthodox and began developing those relationships and having conversations about how they could be church together in some way. And that's when ecumenical Catholicism was born? Essentially. Are there very many in the state of Arkansas? We're, we're the only ecumenical Catholic church. In the state of in Arkansas? In the state of Arkansas, yes. And so that's in your name. Mm -hmm. And the other part that's in your name is San Damiano so it's the San Damiano Ecumenical Catholic Church. Explain the name San Damiano and how you came up with that name, too. Sure. My wife and I are Franciscans, part of a, a Franciscan order. And San Damiano is the name of a little chapel outside of Assisi in Italy, where St. Francis was born and, and spent his life. And it was one of those places that Francis would go and pray, and it was part of his conversion experience, was his experience there at San Damiano. It was a little dilapidated chapel that had long been abandoned, uh, Francis went there regularly to spend time in prayer and meditation. And there's a, a famous crucifix that was hanging there. It's, it's about a six-foot-tall crucifix. And one day in his prayer, he heard the voice of Christ say, Francis, go repair my house, which, as you can see, is falling into ruins. And Francis looked around and said, well, yeah, it really is. <laughs> and he, he took it very literally, very concrete thinker and began collecting stones and rebuilding the chapel. But it later began to understand that the call was much larger, that to repair God's house was not just to repair this little chapel, but it was to repair essentially the world. And so, as you probably know, Francis is a patron saint of creation, of ecology, well known for peace and justice efforts. And those are the kinds of things that as Franciscans we put our focus on, is repairing the, the household of God, which we believe is all of creation. Did you have a dream that made you decide on that name? or? How did you get the calling to call it that? My wife actually chose that name. 
we wanted to have something that would be recognizably Catholic. So Saint something, right? You know, for most Catholic churches. And San Damiano is such a central piece of the Franciscan story that that was just an important image for us. And we never dreamed at the moment that we chose it that it would be as difficult for people to pronounce as it is. So the Franciscans, were they monks that you stayed with? Were they Franciscan monks? So Franciscans identify themselves as friars rather than monks. Friars. Yes, friar, which is just a word that means brother. So we're brothers and sisters. Monk comes from the Greek word monos, which means one, and it refers to the idea of the religious, the monks staying in, in cells in the monastery and being isolated and tied into the monastery. Franciscans don't stay in a monastery. They stay in a friary or a convent. Convent just means coming together. But Franciscans are known for going from gospel to life and life to gospel. That is, we, we gather, we spend time together, we encourage one another, and then we go back out into the world. This whole idea of being sent forth into the world on mission, then coming back to regather and recharge. And that's their philosophy. Mm -hmm. What country were you in when you studied with the Franciscans? Oh, in the U.S. I began with an order called the Order of Ecumenical Franciscans, oh. which is uh, not tied to any particular denomination and has folks from every major Christian group that you can think of, and, and some very obscure ones as well. And then later, a few years ago, six years or so ago, uh, we asked the order to release us so that we could form a new Franciscan group within the ecumenical Catholic communion because we thought we had something to offer our church that would help it grow and strengthen since it's a relatively new communion. So you have a Franciscan <clears throat> order in your current church? Yes. Now that we've met Father Fred Ball, let's continue our visits with former guests on the show up in your business with Carrie McCoy. Dr. Chris Keller from Trinity Episcopal was asked by Carrie... What made you decide on a life of service? Well, I was um, raised in faith uh, by my mother and my father and um, given to understand that whatever it is we do in life, uh, we do it as a steward of the gifts that God has given us. And that could be a career as a history professor, as I thought I would be, or a farmer or a, somebody working in the oil industry or uh, anywhere. So the question is, what talents do you have and what do you believe that God is calling you to do? And it takes everybody a while to sort that out. And after I got it sorted out, I went to seminary. Was there one thing that happened that made you say, this is what I got to do? Or did it just start creeping at you? Uh, it started creeping on me. I was uh, in graduate school at Harvard and uh, I would ride the subway to Cambridge from Boston where we lived. And I just began to have a feeling that uh, I was being moved to become a priest, which by then I was 23 or 4 years old and um, hadn't had that feeling before. I didn't think it was preposterous, but I, unless I felt I was called to do it, I wasn't going to volunteer. And uh, it just began to dawn on me that I was called. So it was not one thing that happened one day like some people say i just had this one day this one moment and i thought this is what i need to do and this is what i need to change so this was just an evolution of thought that kept nagging at you i guess you'd say it did but it didn't take that long it, i would say that it occurred over a period of about three months i went from oh I, I wonder if i'm called to do this to waking up one morning and saying i really believe i am called to do this boy that's a gift right there knowing what you want to do your father was the episcopal bishop of arkansas during the time of desegregation, that he went to Mississippi and all white to a church 
an all-white church in Mississippi, and did what? Well, it was uh, early in the 60s, uh, and he was the uh, dean of St. Andrew's Cathedral in Jackson. And Oh, um, not in Little Rock? Well, it, no, it was in Jackson, Mississippi. Oh, okay. And it was the um, the Sunday after Megar Evers was killed. Um, and who's that? Megar Evers was um, a great, he was the president of the Mississippi NAACP, I believe, at the time, and was one of the great leaders in the civil rights movement throughout the country at that time. And he was assassinated, I think, in his front yard in uh, Jackson. And um, surrounding that event, groups, uh, teams from the Southern, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, SNCC, were attempting to integrate churches in the way that uh, Freedom Riders had integrated uh, dime stores, Woolworths, and bus rides and everything. And um, the teams were being turned away at other churches, and they, uh, at St. Andrews, the St. Andrews knew they weren't going to turn them away. And the Freedom Riders were? Well, they were African Americans, and the, the the group that came to St. Andrews was uh, four women, uh, and um, they came to the, the front door, and they were welcomed in and stayed for church, and when they uh, walked out, uh, one of them wrote later, she wrote a book about her, about her life, Ann Moody, it was called Coming of Age in Mississippi, and she says that the minister, who was my father, met her at the door, and uh, she's and uh, he said, "Come again." And she said, and he said it as if he meant it. And I began to have a little hope. Isn't that a great story? Didn't he also make the front page of the newspaper? He was before? in the that uh, that story with a picture, a photograph of him and the women was on the front page of the New York Times. That is a strong image. Mm-hmm. So, how did your father end up becoming the bishop of Arkansas? Uh, well, in the Episcopal Church, we have elections and. Uh, well, he went from Mississippi to Arkansas? He was nominated to be the bishop of, of Arkansas, and there was an election, and he was elected. And that's why he moved? Yeah. Mm-hmm. How old were you? I was uh, just about to enter the seventh grade. What a weird time to move. It was. How similar was the call to service for Reverend Susan Sims Smith, also a guest on Up In Your Business? Reverend Susan Sims Smith is teaching the world love and acceptance for all religions and cultures through her work at the Interfaith Center in Little Rock, Arkansas. Her belief in a higher power has guided her in all aspects of her life, and creative is what she was when in 1999 she reinvented herself and left the comfortable and successful practice as a Jungian-oriented psychotherapist therapist and became an Episcopal priest, co-founding the House of Prayer at St. Margaret's Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. You know, the Buddhists have an interesting concept called merit reduction. Called what? Merit reduction. Okay. And so each day, a devout Buddhist, if they have done something that makes a positive contribution to society, they pray that any merit that might come to them for having succeeded, that that gets converted to the energy of prayer for people on the planet who have no one for whom to pray for, have nobody that will pray for them. So they take any merit of their success and transform it and send it out to humans 
that have nobody praying for them. So any merit from anything that I've done that we might talk about, let's just set the foreground before we get started that that energy is going to get transformed and become prayer for people that are isolated or lonely or afraid or ill, and we're going we're gonna to send it that way. So I don't need to build up any merit. Whatever merit I have, I need to give it away and send it out to people that need it. Is Buddhism a religion or is it a practice? It's both. It's definitely a religion, and there are particular practices in the different types of Buddhism that are uh, committed to by the practitioners. So then I want to say one other thing, because we're going to be talking about success, how do, how people become successful. That's one of the things we're going to talk about, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. So I have a really close friend who's the executive director of the Interfaith Center. Her name is Sophia Saeed, and she's Muslim. And she is a Sufi Muslim, and she's very, very involved in meditation and prayer and uh, interesting spiritual practices. And she teaches me that in Islam, if you have succeeded at something, you thank God for three things. First, you thank God that God asked you to do that service because God could have asked anybody. Yeah, for the opportunity. Right. So... The fact that I had the opportunity to help start the House of Prayer and the opportunity to help start the Interfaith Center, the first thing is to thank God for giving me that opportunity. And then the second thing is you thank God that God created you in such a way that you had the capacity to say yes to the opportunity. The talent. And that's the third thing is the talent. But the second thing is God put inside you the willingness to say yes. And then the third thing is the talent and the ability to do it. So when Sophia is talking about a service project that she and I are working on, which we do a lot, uh, we always sit and do those three things. Like we'll just get so excited that we had the opportunity to do this project, that we had the willingness to say yes to it, and that then we had the capacity to pull it off. And then all of that gets converted back to the divine. So it, it means we're small. We're, I think of myself and Sophia and others that are in the service business, as you are at this moment with this show, I think of us as temporary service delivery units on the planet. Good quote. We are temporary and we are service delivery units. One day this last week, I was doing my meditation and I saw, you know, an outside water hydrant has like a round thing that you turn to get it to go on. This was a big one. Mm-hmm. And in the silence, I was told to turn that thing. So in my meditation, I turned this huge faucet, outdoor faucet, and I heard, you are to be a gush of goodness to this earth. And I think that's what we're all supposed to do, to turn on the faucet and open up and let the water of love flow through us to be goodness for this planet. If you're just tuning in, this edition of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy is a revisiting of members of the clergy who've been guests on the program over the years. Having just celebrated Holy Week last week and Easter Sunday this past weekend, we've got four guests that we're revisiting. Let's meet our fourth, the Reverend Mother Amy Daffler Moe. Trinity Episcopal Cathedral's first female dean in its 136-year history. When did you know you wanted to become a priest? Was there a singular event, or had you been ruminating on it for a while? Because you have a B.A. in liberal arts. Mm -hmm. I read where you were going to go to school to be a lawyer, I think Mm -hmm. I read. And then 
all of a sudden now you've got a master's in divinity was there something that happened or did you really always kind of think about it i always wanted to be a priest um my closest friends are tired of hearing this story um but well, i've never heard it. Yeah, so i'll tell you thank you for being mm-hmm. interested um i grew up i'm an only child and grew up spending my summers with my grandparents and my paternal grandfather grandpa joe went to church every sunday he was the treasurer of his church this is back in the day when you could um the treasurer could actually take the money home and make the deposit and then take it to the bank the next day so my time spent with him in the summer was going to church with him he was teaching me ministry as a non-ordained person unintentionally really um so when I was about eight years old, we went to a Lutheran ordination. I grew up Lutheran, and the minister, I don't know if you've ever been to an ordination, but there's all this really fancy stuff, right, with the clothes and the music. And I thought to myself, I don't know what this guy has going on, but I like it. And that was the, the seed, right? That's how, I, that's how God got me. Um, I started talking from that age about that I wanted to be a Eight years old. When I wanted to be a minister. Well, it is theater, and you are counting money in the afternoons. Those I mean, two pretty good things. It's, <laughs> right, there's a lot of like positives as a kid. You're like, nothing really bad here. Um, plus, everybody at church is nice. I mean, on Sundays. So I talked about it forever. I never had anybody tell me no, which is really unusual. You know, in the Episcopal Church, they only started ordaining women in 1976. I was born in 1974. So there should have been a lot of people to tell me no, especially in the South. Uh, South has been behind everybody else in ordaining women. Um, but no one ever did, and which to me is a miracle. So I got to college and told everybody I was getting a LaBarre's degree to get me ready to go to seminary. If I could have skipped college, I would have. If I thought I could just go straight to the Master's of Divinity piece, but you, you got to get the BA to get the MDiv. But while I was in college, I really lost my faith. It was really the first time my faith had ever been tested in any significant way. And it wasn't like anything dramatic happened. It was just I stopped going to church. It, it, it didn't have any, it just didn't really have any meaning. I think what happened was is I lost my sense of duty and obligation. And so my junior year, I broke up with a boyfriend. He broke my heart. And my closest friend and my oldest friend, who was my college roommate, she was applying to go abroad to do a year in Ireland, in Northern Ireland. And she said, just uh, why don't you just apply? You just come with me and just get a break. Just take a break. I'm like, I'm a junior. I'm supposed to graduate next year. Who cares? You know? Okay. So I said, my mom will never let me do it. I called my mom. My mom said, well, if you can pay for it, you can go. I don't That sounds like a good idea. So the whole plan was that Martha and I were going to go together. We'd be together. Well, she got placed in Finland. And the next thing I knew, I was on an airplane, never traveled other to my grandparents. I never went to camp. Ne- I'm on an airplane to Belfast, Northern Ireland. By yourself? By myself. I got off the plane. Started praying. Well, I got off the plane. <laughs> I called my dad. I said, well, there you go. I did it. Can I come home now? Nope. They wouldn't let me. I didn't come home at Christmas. What month is this? Um, that would have been August of 2000, uh, 1995. Did you stay? Who'd you stay with? We lived in the dorms. So it was a it was a pure exchange program. This is when kids were first studying abroad. You know, now everybody goes abroad. But back there, it was like a really unusual thing. So all my scholarships applied. And 
um, I was working on my senior thesis. So, and my senior thesis was on Northern Irish literature. So everything just sort it just sort of all fell into place. And I ended up in Belfast staying in the dorm. The first people to greet us off the airplane was the basically like what we would think of now as the Baptist student union, except they're all Anglican over there. So it was the equivalent of like an Anglican student union. And they just sort of adopted me. Um, there were a whole group of us that our floor was sort of the international student floor. So there was a young woman from Finland. There was some some Southern Irish, our, our true Irish folks there, not true Irish, but um, Americans, Swedish, um, the Swedish, they used to dress me up like a Swede and they teach you me. You look like a Swede. And they teach me Swedish sayings. There's a huge Swedish population in Northern <laughs> Ireland. And we would go to these soccer football games and they'd teach me how to talk in Swedish and people would come up. It was a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> they'd paint these Swedish flags on my face. At any rate, I made these like incre- these these Christian students just really they would come by and you accidentally met them because your program was not a religious based no, program i was going to a public so god university. came in there and said we're going to just sweep her up i vividly remember i had been invited to go to a bible study and i said look i didn't even bring my bible why won't you let this go and um he said oh his name was andrew he showed up the next week with a bible inscribed i still have it it's an NIV, which is the New International Version, but they called it the the Northern Ireland Version. And he said, now you have a Bible, now you just come. And it it really did. I remember standing in the rain and thinking, this is the dumbest race I've ever run in my life. I'm not going to win. So in terms of trying to run away from God. Ah. And so um, I started going to church with them. And by the time I left, I had fallen back in love with God and it was not a duty obligation. It truly was this. I have this relationship with my creator and he's called me into this ministry, but I don't really want to do that ministry because it's, it's not very sexy. Right. So I'll just go to law school. That's what I do. I'll go to law school. That's the inner conversation that was happening in my head. That'd be interesting. I make more money mm-hmm. um, for sure. Right. My advisor's like, well, I thought you were going to go to seminary. I was like, I changed my mind. I'm not going to do that. She's like, well, you, you, you could become a lawyer for nonprofits. That, and I'm thinking, well, you don't make a lot of money doing that, but okay, I'll do that. That feels like a civil service sort of thing to do. Yeah. And, right. So when you apply to law school, at least back in the day, 20 years ago, you had to write like 300 words or less. Why do you want to be a lawyer? I, I had a sentence. It's, it was my advisor tells me that would be an interesting that's thing your sentence because my advisor told me to right it's probably not going to get you into like washington and lee i mean i just a guess but um and i was sitting at our kitchen table we, we lived in this very small apartment and um i was sitting at this kitchen table and i just burst into tears because i i could not it was like the first i'm a liberal arts degree i can kind of my way through anything right i can kind of make up my answer through anything she whispered yeah, but y'all. In and, case um, you're wondering, you fill in the blank. <laughs> so I couldn't. I couldn't come up. I couldn't fake my way into law school, and it was because I was called to be a minister of the to, gospel. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so I called my priest and said, "I think I need to go through the ordination process." And he said, "Well, finally, you've come back. You're Lutheran priest." This. So we became Episcopalian when I was in junior high. Who's we? My parents and I. Your father, that's a scientist. Food scientist, yeah. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. So we say he left the Lutheran church because they had called a minister who he, my dad had decided was racist. He probably was racist. And 
my dad wasn't going to go to church there. So my dad says he became a seventh day golfer. (laughs) There's a lot of those. Right. And my mom started visiting churches. And this was in a little town called Laurenburg, North Carolina. So right outside of Fayetteville, they, um, they have a Presbyterian college there. And, um, there's teeny tiny Episcopal church there, still a mission. It's always been a mission. And the minister there, uh, the very Reverend Timothy Kimbrough, he's now the dean of the cathedral in Nashville. Whoa. Um, it was his first church. And uh, Timothy is, um, I mean, in my mind, he was six feet tall. I don't know how actually how tall he is. But when you know, when you're in middle school and there's somebody with a big personality, they mm-hmm. just are as, they're, they're as tall as God. Mm-hmm. And that was Timothy, big, thick, bushy black hair. It's all gray now and so engaging. And um, he has a smile that just lights up a room and he just, you just know he loves you. He's, it's like, you're the exactly what he needed that day. And so my mom said, we're going to go to church here. And that's how we became Episcopalian. And dad said, okay. Mm-hmm. He did. Now that you're acquainted with all four of our guests on the program tonight, we'll take a quick break. And when we come back, let's see how they grapple with tough societal questions. This is Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy. All UIYB past and present interviews are available at Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy's YouTube channel, Facebook page, the Arkansas Democrat Gazette's digital version, flagandbanner.com's website, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Just ask your smart speaker to play Up in Your Business with Carrie McCoy. And by subscribing to our YouTube channel or flagandbanner.com's email list, you will receive prior notification of that day's guest. Here's a message from Dreamland Ballroom. Upstairs in Taborian Hall, home of flagandbanner.com. When a great organization serving a great community issues a new mission statement, that's a big deal. And the Friends of Dreamland has one. Friends of Dreamland celebrates the community of historic West 9th Street, shares the legacy of Dreamland Ballroom, and preserves the original intent of Taborian Hall. Let's break that down. Celebrate the community. The men and women that lived, worked, and played in the West 9th Street neighborhood faced brutal social stigma every day, but thrived. We'll never forget this and we'll always celebrate it. Share the legacy. There's no doubt that the most fun and fascinating facet of the history of Dreamland Ballroom are all the legends that graced the Dreamland stage. Unfortunately, it's taken only one generation to almost completely forget this great history. It promotes pride in our hometown when we remember it and encourages us to do everything we can to keep this community strong. And finally, preserve the original intent. Taborian Hall was built as a central fixture of commerce, community organization, and entertainment. And that's our mission statement now. We have a major legacy to live up to and a lot of work ahead of us, but we plan to move forward. See how you can help develop the new mission statement into reality. Visit dreamlandballroom.org. We're back on Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. Regular listeners to the program will know that one of Carrie's goals in every show is to get clear, precise definitions of terms that we've all heard for our whole lives. Let's do that now with Father Fred Ball concerning everything associated with the Easter season, which we all just finished celebrating. Let's tell them what Lent is and why there's 40 days. Sure. Throughout the history of the church, the, the length of Lent has varied throughout the year. Sometimes it's been longer, sometimes it's been shorter. But historically, Lent was a time for the church to prepare candidates for baptism at Easter. Uh, Easter is sort of the classic time, you know, the, the prime time, if you will, to uh, baptize new Christians. 
And so Lent became a period for teaching the faith to the new converts uh, and for Christians who had already been baptized to prepare to renew their baptismal commitments at Easter. And so somehow we settled on 40 days. I thought it was because he was in the desert 40 days. I thought well, Jesus I was, say, was in the 40 days. I, I was going to say, that's part of it too, is we've got, the, we've got the 40 days of Jesus' temptation in the wilderness. We have the 40 years of wandering in the you know, wilderness for, with the Israelites. So 40 is, a, is one of those important numbers symbolically in the Scriptures. And I think that's why they finally settled on that. There's several numbers that are symbolic in Scripture, like 12, mm-hmm. 3. Mm-hmm. you have anything to say about either one of those? So 12 for the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, the 12 apostles. Right. You know, 3, of course, obviously for the Trinity. And people multiply and add and subtract and do all kinds of things with those numbers so that you have the 144,000 who are referred to in the book of Revelation. Well, 144 is 12 squared. Oh, Times yeah. a thousand just for good measure. So what'd you give up for Lent? What did I give up for Lent? I'm not sure I gave up for Lent as much as what? as tried to take on. Oh, there you go. So Lent and disciplines for me are not necessarily about depriving yourself, but it, they're about realigning yourself. And the word conversion is an important word in Franciscan talk. Convert means to turn with. And realigning yourself, turning yourself, getting in line with God in a fresh way is what's important. And so Lenten discipline might be to take on a more regular prayer routine or scripture study or service to the poor or something like that. It, it might also mean getting something out of your life that, that is hindering your relationship with God. A lot of people are going to this uh, uh, Lenten season with with um, day off on Sunday. So you get to... You have a repass on Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> so you, have you heard about that? No, I haven't. Give up church for Lent. Well, no, <laughs> not give up church, but you get to give up whatever you gave up for Lent. Oh, so yes, on, yes. So like if yeah. you gave up ice cream like I did on Sunday, you get to have ice cream. Yeah, and the idea behind that is that Sunday is always, Sunday can never be a fasting day because it's always a celebration of the resurrection, even during Lent. So if you count from Ash Wednesday to Easter Sunday, it's more than 40 days because the Sundays don't count. And that's where that, notion comes that people can step away from their Lenten discipline on Sunday. I did not realize that. I've never counted that up. So Palm Sunday is the Sunday preceding Easter. Mm -hmm. And it's when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey and people are fanning him with palms. What does that all mean? Anything in particular? Well, there's some interesting things going on with Lent there. One is, of course, people are welcoming Jesus, waving their palms, proclaiming that he is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest, that same crowd by Good Friday is going to be shouting, crucify him. And it's a reminder of the frailty, I think, of humanity and our, how easy it is to just turn with the crowd in one direction or another. And a little Lenten tidbit that folks should know is that on Ash Wednesday, we get those ashes by burning the palms from the previous year's Palm Sunday. A reminder that those green palms that we wave so happily and cheering Jesus on, have become dry and brittle, as our faith sometimes does after a long time. And we take those palms and burn them, and they create the ash by which we mark our repentance and our, our readiness to turn again and sign up one more time to say we're followers of Jesus. And I mentioned conversion being an important Franciscan word because we talk about, in the Franciscan tradition, we talk about daily conversion, recognizing that 
you know, our relationship with God is not a, you know, do it once and you're done forever kind of thing. You know, like you've signed a contract for fire insurance to keep you out of hell. But rather that every day I have to make the decision that I'm going to be in some way a follower of Jesus or not. That is very well said. I never really knew, and my preacher, I hope he's not listening, I never really knew why, I knew where those ashes were from the year before, mm. from burning the palms from the year before, but I never really thought about it in that context to just show how brittle and quickly we can turn and that it's time to be reminded to stay the course. Mm. That was really well said. I've recently watched a documentary about the last days of Christ. Mm. And they've got a theory on there that it was really six months and not six days. Have you seen it? No. It's interesting. interesting. It is. It's interesting. So there's Palm Sunday, and then we skip Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, and we jump to Monday, Thursday, feet washing. Sure. Can you tell their story of the feet washing? Sure. Yeah, two important things happening there on Thursday. Holy Thursday is the time when we have Jesus giving us what he called the new commandment, to love one another. He said, as I have loved you. And he demonstrated his love and his attitude of servitude uh, by washing his disciples' feet. And in the scriptures, we read that they protested that, saying, you know, why are you washing our feet when we should be washing yours? But the kind of leadership and service that that Jesus demonstrates is not one that's hierarchical, but it's an invitation to us to serve one another rather than to be served. That's how he describes himself and In Mark's Gospel, he says the Son of Man, referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve, and to give himself for many. And so he washes the disciples' feet at supper, which is the the role of the the lowest servant, really, in the household would be to wash the guest's feet. And then the other thing that's happening on Holy Thursday is the institution, we believe, of the, the Lord's Supper, of the Mass. And when Jesus blesses and breaks bread, and gives it to them and says, take eat, this is my body. Blesses the wine, gives it to them and says, drink you all of this. This is my blood of the new covenant. That all is instituted on that Thursday, the last week of his life. It seems like we always talk about feet washing. We really should be talking about the Last Supper on Thursday then. Both of them, I think, because they go hand in hand. What does the word Monday mean? Monday comes from the Latin word uh, for commandment. Because he said on that night, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. And so that's when we refer to it as Monday, Thursday. It's the Thursday in which we got that new commandment from Jesus. And then, of course, there's Good Friday, which I don't know why it's called Good Friday. It should be called Black Friday. It's the crucifixion. Right. And I think it's interesting that the word has been chosen Good Friday instead of Black Friday. Only, I suppose, because of the benefits that come from Good Friday that because of Jesus' willingness to follow in obedience, you know, and demonstrate God's love even to the point of death on the cross, and then God saying yes to that by the resurrection, Friday becomes good not because the event was good, but because the result was good. Wow. So who was there at the crucifixion? Yeah, Yeah, you asked that question because you know the answer. Who was there? It was the women who were left, the Marys. Yeah. Who stayed with him to the end when all of his other disciples, when the men had fled. Now, that's not why I asked the question. (laughs) Some people say he was alone. Some people say the Marys were there. Of course, I want to believe the Marys were there. I think some people say he was alone, but I can't imagine that. And we have the apostle John there, at least for some time, because, you know, you have the great story when 
Jesus looks to his mother and says, Woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. He essentially entrusts them to each other to be family together after his death. So then we have the next day, which is Saturday, and that's the Easter Vigil. And it starts at dark, and it's really just waiting for the resurrection. The Easter Vigil is the most dramatic liturgy that we have in the Catholic tradition. It is the Mass from which all other Masses flow. Uh, and really, historically, as the liturgical year developed, Easter was the first and most important. Uh, we didn't get around to establishing Christmas for some time, and even then had a couple of different dates for Christmas before we settled on it in the Western Church. But the Easter Vigil is a dramatic storytelling of the history of God's love for humanity from the beginning. During the vigil portion of the service, we read a series of scriptures from the Hebrew scriptures first, and then eventually move into the regular Mass for the New Testament readings. We tell the story of God sending the prophets, of God telling of his rescue of Noah through the flood, of the, that wonderful story from Ezekiel about the Valley of Dry Bones, which is called back to life. And so it's a story of salvation and resurrection in, in so many images. And it's, it is, quite frankly, my favorite liturgy of the year. Father Fred Ball on the program, doing one of the things that's the best part of Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy, defining terms. And he just went through the entire list of Holy Week, which we just finished celebrating. Up next in this program, another visit with Susan Sims-Smith, who runs the Interfaith Center, and had a moment of clarity. When I first started the Interfaith Center, I did not know very much about Islam. And I was going to be teaching a class on an experience that I'd had in meditation with Christ. And my Muslim friend, Sophia Saeed, said, I would really like to come. And I said, Sophia, I hate for you to come because I don't think I'm going to feel very free to talk about Jesus. And I just don't want to step on your toes and blah, blah. And she said, why do you think that I don't love Jesus? And I said, well, you're Muslim. And she said, we absolutely adore him. And we teach our children that he will come back someday to save the planet. And that when our children, if our children are alive, when he comes back, they are to leave everything they're doing and go to Jerusalem. Immediately I said, what? Why did nobody tell me this about Islam? So we have a lot of ignorance between our religions of who believes what and who's against which person. And and so the terrorists that we have are not really Muslims. They're, they're violent, renegade people that are co-opting words out of Islam to do the bad stuff they want to do. But if you meet a real Muslim like Sophia, who is filled with love and who has a tender love for Christ and a, a big heart for humanity. So in the interfaith work, a lot of what we do is understand our misconceptions of each other. Mm-hmm. And, and the, there's Christians exactly like that, too, exactly. that are renegades. That Absolutely. Use, I think the KKK was a Christian-based. Yes, and, you know, we have Christians in Uganda that want to kill gay people, that believe that that's the right thing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the Christians in the Crusades murdered all kinds of people all over Europe. So we have people in every religion that use the language of the religion for purposes of violence, and that's not the heart of any of those religions. Before the program ends, we did promise to get to the sticky social situations that our religious guests on the program have meditated about. Here's Chris Keller. 
it's fixing to get heated up in here. Let's start with gays in the church. I have many Christian friends who have had a hard time aligning gay marriage with their faith in Scripture. And I've heard you say you did, too, when you were young. Well, uh, I think that uh, if you're 63 years old, as I am, then you grew up with more or less the assumption that that gay life was um, contrary to Christian faith and for the intentions that God has for our life. And it's taken a pretty big shakeup in the way that people think about the world and understand things for that change to have occurred in the church and in our society. And um, for as long as I've been a priest, it's been an issue that's been discussed and on the table for conversation and potential change in the Episcopal Church. So when we started, I I would describe myself as initially as an open-minded conservative on the issue. Then I became, after a sabbatical, I took to study it in more depth. I moved from cautious, I mean, from open-minded conservative to cautious liberal. Um, So why is it that we could even consider a change like that? That's a complex question of the interpretation of Scripture, but in general, I would say one of the things that I believe and was taught in my tradition about the Bible is that when we read the Bible, we don't find there that God has intended that every question be settled in advance uh, for all time on matters of how human beings live in relation to each other. We see within the Bible, we see that the kind of human circumstances change, that social arrangements change, and policies change within the people of God. And we see that in the book of Acts, for example, what one of a profound change was around the question of whether um, Christians would be constrained to live the same life with the same restrictions that the people of God in Israel had. And there was actually a church council in the 15th chapter of the uh, Acts of the Apostles where the leaders of the church got together and made a policy, which was a new policy on that question, uh, which tells me that God actually wants human beings, faithful human beings, to uh, to consider questions, uh, to deliberate about them, and that God has given us the authority to faithfully, with fear and trembling, to decide on things like that to the best of our ability. And I've always believed that the question about uh, homosexuality in the church was that sort of question. And um, so then it began... then it becomes a question of what's what's good policy, what's right, what's fair, what's uh, what's going to do the most for human flourishing, which is ultimately what God wants from us. And uh, I eventually got came, it came down to me for the question after kind of sorting through it all, which was that I should love my neighbor as myself, including my gay neighbor. And what do I want for myself? I want faithfulness and love and marriage, and um, and I want my gay neighbor to have that, too. I'd say now I'm not really even a cautious liberal about that. I've, I'm really happy about it. <laughs> uh, you've performed some gay marriages. I have, yeah. One recently. Uh, yeah. What was your favorite part you said in the—I'm in the, actually I arrived late for that wedding, I'm sorry to say. You, that's not the only time I've seen you arrive late. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. So tell me your favorite part that you wrote— Let's see if I have to remember my own sermon. My favorite line that I wrote in that sermon had to do with the fact that Melissa, so the, the, the two people that got married are Amber Carswell, who's a priest in our church, and Melissa Wilkinson. And uh, 
when Amber and Melissa met, Melissa, who's a professor of art at Arkansas State, wasn't involved in the church at all. Melissa had been interviewed somewhere else, and she'd said, religion's not on my radar. I said, little did she know that it was coming at her like a a stealth torpedo from a submarine. (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That was a good one. So there's lots of loves in the Bible. C.S. Lewis wrote a a book called The Four Loves. Four Loves. Uh, There are four Greek words for love. Agape, which is the love of, of God for us. That's unconditional love, love divine, all loves excelling. There's eros, which is romantic love. That's the love that kind of pushes us around the room and makes us want to marry someone or love them. There's philia, which is friendship, and storge, which is uh, the love kind of within a family. It's the love that kind of nests a house, kind of the little give and take. What's that one called? Storge. Never heard of that one. In English language, it would be S-T-O-R-G-E. Wow. So in human flourishing, you've, you've, you've come to decide that your neighbor, your gay neighbor, should have all of those. Mm-hmm. And that without being married, they would not have storgy. I, don't, I think that, that those loves exist outside of the institution of marriage. So I don't think that, that marriage is, is, is a requisite condition for, for those kinds of things. But the, the kind of commitment that marriage represents uh, in the, the, the uh, one of the other things I said in that sermon is that the good marriage the happy marriage is consists of kept promises and answered prayers so what happens in a marriage service is that people make promises uh, for unconditional love for agape and we pray to God in the same service that God will work in us and through us to help us answer those prayers. So happy marriages, kept promises, and answered prayers. And um, that is a unique relationship. I mean, it's unconditional. It's all in. And uh, there are are things that can happen in that relationship that can't happen outside of it, because I think that if you've got that kind of a relationship, that really, by definition, is a marriage. Mm -hmm. And um, so um, I think that the expansion of that understanding within the church sacramentally is a sign of what God's love is like for us um, is an advance in the church. So how do you wrap up a program like this, revisiting all the religious guests that have been on Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy? Perhaps with this thoughtful answer from Amy Moe about why church attendance is dropping. I think it's because it's lost its, um, its ability to be its own voice in the wilderness. What I'm trying to say is that the church, the gospel, has a particular truth to it that doesn't really resonate with any other category of truth. But because we've, we've attached our religion to so many other aspects of how we live, it's lost its depth. It's not as substantive as it can be. You don't have the privilege to get paid to go deep, right? And so the deeper I go into the into my faith, the more I believe that it it's at the core of who I am, who I'm called to be, this connection that I feel to our Creator and to the Christ, and that that is the thing that can drive change to the benefit of creation, this reconciling work that God's trying to do among us. But we get so distracted by all the other things, the call to provide the best we can for our families they're not bad things. They can be distractions from who God's 
calling us to be in the work God is calling us to be. That was a very abstract. I'm a very abstract thinker. It was a very (laughs) abstract thought. So be more specific. What is the holy gospel truth? For me, Uh to me, it's all relational. So in this moment that we have right now between you and I, Uh God is revealing some aspect of God's self to both of us through our conversation. and, And maybe that's kindness, mercy, grace, love, direction, wisdom, truth that we can find in our relationship to one another. And that deepens our call to be more of who God made us to be so that then when I leave here tonight, you take something away. Absolutely. I've been changed and transformed by it. Not only because you are beloved and chosen by God, the one who made you, and you're reminding me of my belovedness and my chosenness, who God made me to be, but God made me to be that person for a purpose, not for my own will, but in order to serve my neighbor and to serve the people that I come in contact with at any point of the day. The pur- a purpose-driven life. A purpose-driven life indeed. That's the program. And as Carrie McCoy says about her purpose every week on the show. Thank you for spending time with me. And if you think this program's been about you, you're right. But it's also been for me. Thank you for letting me fulfill my destiny. My hope today is that you've heard or learned something that's been inspiring or enlightening. And that it, whatever it is, will help you up your business, your independence, or your life. I'm Carrie McCoy. I'll see you next time on Up In Your Business. Until then, be brave and keep it up. You've been listening to Up In Your Business with Carrie McCoy. For links to resources you heard discussed on today's show, go to flagandbanner.com, select radio, and choose today's guests. Subscribe to podcasts wherever you like to listen. Carrie's goal is simple, to help you live the American dream.